The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Okay, so uh, today we're starting a series uh, called Making Room. Uh, you can see we're doing a series on hospitality. Now, I say that word hospitality, and like, what images come to your head? Like, for me, I, I think our, our culture, we've kind of commercialized hospitality, right? So, so for me, I hear that word hospitality, and I get this image of like, Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray, you know, kind of like making little knickknacks and, and showing you cool things you can do for when you have guests over to your home and you can fold a napkin into a swan and like, like that sort of thing. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? In fact, we need more of that sort of thing in an increasingly disconnected world. We need to be inviting people into our homes and gathering around our tables. Uh, we absolutely need that. But it's actually not what I'm talking about in this series. That can be a piece of it. That could be a piece of it. But that's not the Christian discipline of hospitality. That historically there's this Christian discipline of hospitality, and, and this is what it is. Let me just define it for us. So whenever I use this word, don't think Martha Stewart, think this, okay? Uh, the Christian discipline of hospitality is this. Benevolence or good done to those outside your circle of friends. Okay? Christian hospitality is benevolence or good done to those outside your circle of friends. Now, what's that look like? Uh, so, so one of our elders uh, works with an organization called Please Open the Door. And uh, what they do is uh, they encourage Christians to open the door uh, to Mormon missionaries that stop by their house, right? So you guys know how this goes, right? It's Saturday, you're doing your thing, you're in the yard, and two sweaty adolescent boys in ties <laughs> knock on your door, right? and they call themselves elder and ask you if they can tell you about Jesus. You know, I kind of already know about them. But, you know, they, they ask you if you can do that. And what this organization says is it says, hey, well, as a Christian, they're coming right to your door. Would you please open the door? Would you welcome them in? And I was pretty inspired by this idea. Uh, I keep looking. Drew shared with me, uh, the elder who does this. And, and, and so I was like, I got to do it. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, some Mormon missionaries came to my house and uh, showed up, and they said, hey, we'd love to share with you our message about Jesus Christ. Uh, can, can we do that? And I said, sure, why don't you guys come back uh, sometime next week? And so this last, well, I ended up flaking on them, but then they came this last week, and, uh, and they came this last week uh, on Wednesday. And so they show up to my house, and uh, it's Wednesday evening, and they sit down, and, and we start talking, and the first thing they ask me is, so what do you do? Which is like, <laughs> like, which is always the worst, right? And, and I was like, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor at a local Christian church. And, uh, and you can tell, man, as soon as I said that, like their faces just dropped and they're like, oh man, like this dude tricked us, like some reverse evangelism happening here, like fell right into the trap. And, uh, and so, you know, like I could just read it all over. And, and so the kind of the lead missionary, he just goes, well, hey, so can I just ask you, like, why did you have us come over then? Why do you, why do you have us here? Which is a fair question. Uh, and, and so I told him, I said, listen, like, obviously my faith is it's, it's not going to change. I mean, give it your best, buddy, but it's just it's not going to happen. Um, and I said, but, but I said to him, but I've got to imagine that what y'all are doing day in and day out is actually really hard right, to be riding bikes out in the Texas sun, wearing a shirt and tie, and then going door to door, and having probably more than a few doors slammed in your face. It's not easy, man. And so I said, I, I just wanted you guys to maybe have an evening 
where you were with a guy who's pretty nice. And we just hang out, and I'll just get you some water. And as soon as I said that, man, like their faces relaxed. And they just hung out, and we just had a nice conversation. Now, I share that story with you not, not to point out my piety, okay? I, I share that story to point out how simple this is. Simple. Like, like hospitality is it's not rocket scientist rocket science, right? Hospitality, good done to those outside your circle of friends, is, is not, doesn't necessitate, necessitate a graduate degree in theology. It just doesn't. It's not that hard. It's simple. It's opening your door. It's opening up your life. It's opening up the things that God has given you to people around you, outside your circle of friends. And see, hospitality is central to Christian identity. This idea of benevolence or good done to those outside your circle of friends is central to Christian identity. It's it's, it's what we do. It's just part of what it is to follow Jesus. And one of the main reasons it's so central to Christian identity is the text we just read. It's Luke 14. Because in this text, Jesus gets up and he does something pretty incredible. He lays out God's design for hospitality. He says, this is what it looks like for you to open your life to those outside your circle of friends. And so he lays out God's design for hospitality, but then we see he tells this parable, and he reveals some of our excuses to not participate in that. But then we see within that parable that God's welcome remains for us. And so that's what we're going to see, those of you type A folks. We're going to see God's design, our excuses, his welcome. Okay? God's design, our excuses, his welcome. All right, so, so let's go. What's God's design for hospitality? Look with me at verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now I just like, Love this scene in the Bible. Like, Jesus is, is at a guy's house. Uh, he's at a, a rich, religious guy's house having dinner. And what we just read is Jesus essentially stands up at this party and he says, Hey, listen, uh, next time you throw a party, don't invite your friends, don't invite your relatives, don't invite your wealthy neighbors. He says, uh, Next time you do, invite those who can't pay you back, invite those in society who no one wants to spend any time with. That's the real way to throw a party. Can you imagine, like, if Jesus did that, right? Like, you invite him over to your place, you invite your friends, your family to meet this guy, great new teacher, right? And Jesus just gets up in the middle of your house and says, hey, this party's cool and everything, but the guest list is way off, right? Like, like we need some crack addicts in here, like, we need some homeless people, like, but that's what he says. That's what he says. He says, your guest list is off, you got to bring the most broken, marginalized people of society. I want those people at your table. I want you welcoming them into your home. Can I tell you something? These words lay out God's design for hospitality. And these words of Jesus, these three verses we just read, literally change the course of human history. Three verses. Change the course of human history. Here's what I mean. Uh, in ancient times, when Jesus is, is walking around, ancient times, people practice hospitality. They'd invite people into their lives, invite people into their homes, but only insofar as it benefited them. 
right? So, so if, if I want to up my social standing in the culture, I'll invite someone who's got a higher status than me. And so if they come, then I'm associated with them and I look pretty cool. I mean, so much so, a Roman philosopher named Cicero, who is a contemporary of Jesus, uh, he, he said this. I think I've got the quote up here. He said, houses of illustrious men should be open to illustrious guests. Right? And so that's the thought at this time. This guy's a contemporary of Jesus. Says, you know, someone important dines with you. It ups your importance in society. Makes sense. And so while Cicero's saying this, Jesus completely flips it. And says, don't spend time with the people that are there to up your importance. Spend time with those that no one wants to spend time with. And it changes everything. So much so that a century after Jesus says these words, there's this ancient document called the Letter to Diognetus in which a a pagan guy is trying to describe the practices of of early Christians. And he's like, these guys are so weird. And he says, like, these early Christians, he goes, these Christians, they they share a common table, but not a common bed. I think I have that quote over there. He says, they share a common table, but not a common bed. In other words, he says, I look around the Roman Empire and all those pagans, like, everyone's kind of sleeping with everyone, but we're only going to eat exclusively with the people that we want to eat with that'll make us look good. He says, the Christians are the total opposite of that. They're just staying with their spouse, but then they open their table up to absolutely anybody and everybody. And then, a hundred years after that, this massive plague hits the Roman Empire, 260 A.D., Huge plague hits the empire, and people are just abandoning their family members. They're leaving their friends. They're running away from their neighbors so that they don't die from this plague. But this great historian Dionysus records what the Christians did in the midst of this plague. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Right? So, so a plague hits the Roman Empire and the Christians say, hey, put us in, coach. We're in. I'll give you my health. I'll take your sickness. Stop in. They open their lives completely to those in need, to those that no one else wanted to be with. And then 100 years after that, 360 AD, as Christianity began to expand, uh, there's this emperor, Julian, who came in and he said, no, 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 we've got to snuff this out. It's too big. It's too popular. We're over it. He says, we don't want Christianity to expand. And he starts doing what he can to, to sniff it out. But there's this point, you can actually you can read his writings, where he just gets exasperated at how much Christianity is growing. And he says this to his advisors. He says, why do we not observe that it is there, referring to Christians, uh, benevolence to strangers and the holiness of their lives that have done so much to increase Christianity? For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, he means Christians, uh, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And so this guy says, hey, I'm trying to stop this movement, but they keep taking care of our poor people. I can't, what am I going to do? Right? It's amazing. And then 10 years after that, uh, a bishop named Basil opens up the first hospital that, that we kind of know of in, in recorded history. And I could literally, I, I read a book in prep for this, this series called Making Room. Very creative. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, and it traces, I mean, year after year after year, how Christianity and, and our understanding of hospitality 
radically change the world. That as we see God's design of hospitality, where he says, the stranger, the immigrant, the refugee, the poor, the sick, the orphan, they're supposed to be at home with my people. And when the church grabs hold of that, we look throughout history and we see the launch of hospitals. That's why they're all named after saints. We see the launch of hostels and hospice centers and orphanages and soup kitchens and homeless shelters and food pantries. You name it. That's come from God's design of hospitality that we see Jesus do. Where he stands up at some dude's house and says, this is what it looks like now. This is what it means to be hospitable. Flips history on its head. Now I say that, and someone says, hey, well, that's all well and good uh, for the Christians back then. You know, they seemed like they really had their stuff together. But maybe if you're a bit more skeptical, you say, yeah, but the church today, so inward focused. They don't do stuff like that anymore. They just don't care anymore. Just worry about themselves. Uh, in fact, I just, I just got a new book, um, and it's, it's kind of the latest survey on how people perceive Christianity in America and how people perceive Christians in America. And so this is a massive survey done. Uh, and their, their research uncovered that half of all Americans believe that a majority of charitable work in the nation would still happen if Christians just suddenly disappeared. Okay, so half of all Americans think like, yeah, if there weren't Christians, most charitable work would still just continue on, no problem. Okay? Uh, three out of five folks who would say that they're not religious uh, say that there'd be no issue at all if Christians just disappeared, charitable work would just continue as ahead. Now, that's, that's the perception. That's the perception that, that Christianity may have had hospitality in the past, they may have opened their arms to strangers in the past, but not so anymore. That's the perception. Let me just tell you, it's not true. It's not true. It's not true at all. In fact, uh, donations to religious causes and groups make up the largest single share of national charitable giving. It is one-third of all money donated to nonprofits goes to Christian-based organizations that do benevolence. Uh, and let me just get like hyper-local here. Uh, I sit on the board of a nonprofit in our area called the Christian Resource Center. It's based out of Twin Lakes Fellowship, like literally five miles down the road here. And, um, and so this, we had a meeting this last week, and we were just going over our numbers uh, from 2015. Why we're doing it in August, I don't know. But we were. And, uh, and so we're going over them. And looking through our numbers, in 2015 at this one center in Cedar Park, Texas, 17,492 individuals have received either food, job training, furniture, mentorship, or counseling through this center. Okay, there's one center, Cedar Park, Texas, one year, 70,500 people, right? So, so Jesus, you know, he lays out God's design for hospitality in 30 AD, and here we are 2,000 years later, and his followers are still identified by living into that. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And, and what I could do is I could stop the sermon right now, right? We just pat ourselves on the back. We did it, right? And we go home feeling good. But it would not be a Pastor Gabe sermon if you went home feeling good, all right? So uh, we, we've got to bring some misery into this. And, uh, and so we will. Uh, because here's the problem is like everything I just laid out, kind of this entire history of, of hospitality, how we even practice it in the, the, the modern age, our age, uh, is great. It's awesome. But I don't know if you've noticed, as, as we went through the centuries there, it went from indi individual Christians practicing hospitality in their life to being more and more institutionalized. Right? More and more institutionalized. And let me say this. Like, that's not a bad thing. Like, a lot of good happens through those institutions, for sure. 
But it's pretty clear in Jesus' words that all of his followers as individuals, that we would practice this in our lives, that we wouldn't just relegate it to those guys over there, but this way of doing hospitality, of benevolence and good towards those outside our circle of friends, that that would be a key identifier in your life. That would be a key identifier in your life. And so I wonder, if you'd ask yourself, if someone were to watch your life, if they'd look at what you do day in and day out, they'd say, ah, there's a guy who regularly does good to strangers. If they'd say, oh, there's a family that's just always looking to welcome needy people in however they can. If they'd look at your life and they'd say, hey, there's a gal who just, she loves to walk alongside people who can never pay her back. See, Hospitality is really simple, simple concept. It's really, really hard to do. It's really hard to live this sort of life. And so what happens is we make all sorts of excuses as to why we don't do it. And so that's what Jesus gets into next. Look with me at verse 15. So Jesus lays out God's design of hospitality, and then this happens. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. All right, so I love this part of the story too, right? Because like verse 15 is so good, right? So, so, uh, so Jesus describes God's plan for hospitality. And like the vibe you get from this scene is like right after Jesus does that, some guy just goes, blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Like he's just real excited about it. Like just bursting at the seams. And, and, and then Jesus' response is kind of like, yeah, okay, calm down, weirdo. And then he's like, let me just kind of lay some stuff out for you. Uh, and so Jesus tells this parable about, about a guy throwing a banquet, uh, and he invites a bunch of people to this banquet, uh, but then when the time comes to actually party, everyone has an excuse why they don't want to show up. Now, what's Jesus getting at? Well, he's getting at a couple things. The, the main thing, honestly, the main point of this parable that he's driving at is he's telling the religious folks that he was talking to there, and he's telling us today, don't miss out on your invitation to God's kingdom. Don't get distracted by everything in the world and fail to see that God has invited you to take part in who he is and to bring you into his kingdom of grace. Don't miss out on that. But the second thing Jesus is doing here is he's saying don't miss out on God's kingdom in general, but he's saying don't miss out on the opportunity to live into God's kingdom, specifically as he's outlined in God's design for hospitality. He says don't miss the opportunity to live into God's kingdom as you practice hospitality to those outside your circle of friends. And see, and then he lays out these excuses that, that really are no different than the excuses we have for not practicing hospitality in our life. Like, not at all. So let's, let's just go through them real quick. Uh, verse 18, right? First guy says, hey, would love to take part in that, but I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
right? In our modern context, we may some, say something in fact like, hey man, I'd love to, you know, helping strangers out, helping folks out in need uh, that, that I don't know, that are outside my circle of friends, really interacting with them. Love to do that. That's cool. Sounds really nice, but like I got a lot of housework to do. I just really got to take care of some things. Got some yard work. I got to take care of my toys. Got to make sure my boat's looking good. Got to, got to, you know, take care of all my, my, my things. Okay. Second guy says, hey, would love to go to the party. Would love to take, live into this kingdom life. Uh, but I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. I can't tell you how many times people have said, Gabe, I've got five yoke of oxen I've got to take care of. Um, no, right? This, this is an agrarian culture. Uh, and so the, the five yoke of oxen, that, that'd be work. I'd be like, I was saying, well, hey, you know, I'd love to help people out. I, I know what Jesus said about this. I know about this hospitable life you're talking about. But, but I got to work, man. I got to put in the hours at the office. Like, I do not have time for that. Sorry. Verse 20. Last guy says, oh, man, yeah, we'd love to live into that sort of life. Uh, but got married, have a wife, can't do it. Family, right? Family. It's like, oh, man, we... We'd love to practice hospitality. We'd love to be benevolent, but like life's just so crazy right now. Like we're just so busy. It's just so nuts. It's just it's just a stage of life. We you know we've been here for twenty years, but it's just this stage of life. Uh, that's gonna be our excuse right now. That, that's what it is. And so Jesus is saying, like this is nothing new. Jesus says when it comes to living into God's design of hospitality, we've all got excuses. We just do. And here's the deal. And all these things I just listed, our homes, our work, our family, are of course good things. And you should invest time in them. They're gifts from God. But when they become excuses for us to not live into God's design of hospitality, he's not okay with that. He's not. Look what happens, verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and, and lame. Now notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't say, Oh, yeah, I totally forgot you were going to have a life with work and family and all that stuff. So, so if you do have a life, you don't have to worry about anything I said before. That's fine. You're excused. No, he doesn't say that. He says, yeah, that's fine. That's going to be the case. You're still expected to be a hospitable people. That's part of what it is to be the people of God. And he's ticked at the excuses. And so what do we do? Because it's actually really hard. Like, like if, if you take this seriously, if you were to go back, if you look at your Bible, you go back to verses 12 to 14 and see how Jesus describes God's design for hospitality. Like, it is impossible to get out the weight of, out from under the weight of underneath that. Like, have a homeless dude over for dinner. I've maybe done that. I don't know that I've ever done that. And Jesus is like, that's just supposed to be your life. Anyone else here doing that? Right? Like if we actually reflect on his words, like they're just, they're heavy. And I, I don't know how to escape from underneath that. Because like, you know, I, I think about many of you, I can follow a lot of Jesus' teachings. I'm like, I'm doing all right. Right? I love the people that are sent in my life. Pretty good at forgiving people. I like being generous as long as they stay over there. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty good at sharing the gospel. But man, this is hard. Hospitality is very, very hard. And so what do we do? How do we do it? Well, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into sort of the nitty-gritty of that. But today, I'm just going to end us with something simple. This is what we're going to do today. So we're going to repent, and we're going to move forward in light of God's welcome. 
We're going to repent and move forward in light of God's welcome. So look with me at verses 22 to 23. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. All right, so we saw the master tells the servant to go out and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant does that. And then verse 22, he has some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, I think. Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. There's still room. I see, what this tells us and what Jesus is telling us is that there's always room at God's table. There's always room at God's table for the poor, for the broken, for those who are far off. There's room at the table. And there's room at the table for the wayward disciple. For those of us who falter at following Jesus, there's room for you. There's room for me. He doesn't just look at you as some ticked off master saying all those excuses. They didn't do what I told them to do. No, no, no. He says, regardless of your excuses, come on in. There's always a seat for you here. God makes room. God always makes room for you at his table. And he does that because when he looks at you, he doesn't see an imperfect person. He doesn't see someone who's just miserable failure, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. He doesn't see that. He sees his perfect son. He sees his perfect daughter who he loves with a love that's from eternity. And the reason he does that is because when he looks at you, he doesn't see your faults. He sees Jesus. He sees his son who lived the life that you could not, who died the death that you deserve. Because of that, he welcomes you in. Because of that, there's always room at the table for you. See, in Jesus, God is the ultimate host. He says, come on, there's always a seat for you. You come sit here. Receive my grace. Receive my forgiveness. Uh, in reflecting on God's hospitality in Jesus, um, 16th century theologian and my BFF, uh, Martin Luther, um, he, he penned these words. It's long. It would be spectacular and amazing, prompting all the world to open ears and eyes, mouth and nose in uncomprehending wonderment. If some king's son were to appear in a beggar's home to nurse him in his illness, wash off his filth, and do everything else the beggar would have to do. Would this not be profound humility? Any spectator or beneficiary of this honor would feel impelled to admit that he had seen or experienced something unusual and extraordinary, something magnificent. But what is a king or an emperor compared with the Son of God? Furthermore, what is a beggar's filth or stench compared with the filth of sin, which is ours by nature? sinking a hundred thousand times worse and looking infinitely more repulsive to God than any foul matter found in a hospital. And yet, the love of the Son of God for us is of such magnitude that the greater the filth and stench of our sins, the more he befriends us, the more he cleanses us, relieving us of all our ministry and of the burden of all our sins and placing them upon his own back. I love this quote because it says, because of Jesus' work for you on the cross, man, there's always room for you at God's table. You always have a seat. 
I think about it like this. Uh, my wife, Melissa, led uh, college students on, on mission trips to a, an orphanage in Peru uh, for like five years, five, six years. And, um, and this orphanage is really cool. It was, it was started by a family. It was, it was a husband and wife, Felix and Erica, and they had three daughters of their own. And they literally were just like, well, I guess we'll just take in 25 more kids. And they did. Um, you know, they kind of had a compound, and so they, they brought them in. Um, three cheers for compounds, Millers. Um, anyways, so, sorry, inside joke. You'll be a part of it one day. Um, anyways, and so, so they had this compound with, with these 25 kids on there. And my wife would lead these trips with these college students, and, uh, and I got to go with her one year. And, and every year when we'd go on these trips um, was the only time where these kids got to go to the beach because it was the only time they, they had enough adult supervision to, to keep track of them so they, they wouldn't drown, right? So, so we come, and we, we always have beach day. And so, so beach day rolls around, and, and we go, and we take all the little orphan kids, and it's all these college students, and we go, and we have an awesome time at the beach, like super fun, splashing the waves, got ice cream, like it was great. And, uh, and then the day came to an end, and we were going to go get some food. So we, we round up all the kids and all the, the college students, and we, we roll, and we get about half a mile away. We're, we're walking to a restaurant. We get about half a mile away, and, and it hits both the house father, Felix, and myself that we're missing a kid. And, uh, and so we're missing Milagros, this little seven-year-old girl, and we're like, oh my goodness, we gotta go find her. And so he and I just take off running uh, back to this beach. Now, this beach is outside of Lima, Peru, which is it's, it's a major metropolitan city. I mean, it's just a huge city, uh, and this beach is huge, right? It's just umbrellas everywhere, just literally thousands of people there. And so we're saying, like, how are we going to find Milagros? I don't know what we're going to do. And so he and I just search and search and search. And, and I'm not, I don't really know how we found him, perhaps by the grace of God, but we found her. And I remember just seeing this moment of Felix seeing Milagros, and he just running up and scooping her up in his arms and carrying her and taking her to go to the restaurant to hang out with all her friends. And I'll never forget, though, most of all, like his face. Like Felix, he wasn't like mad at Milagros for, for not sticking with the group. He was relieved. Most of all, he was overjoyed that we found this little girl. Now think about it. This is a guy who's opened up his home, who's opened up his life. He's got his own daughters, but he finds this girl who he lost, this girl who he saw as his own daughter. He grabbed hold of her with great joy. Friends, it's like, it's, it's that sort of pursuit. Like it's, it's that sort of love that God has for you. It just is that, that, that when you were lost and far off, not looking to come home, God came searching for you and brought you to his table and said, hey, you're welcome here. You've got a seat here. He's done all of that for you through Jesus. So my prayer for us through these next few weeks is that God's hospitality to us would shape us to live hospitable lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we were far off, you sent Jesus for us. Thank you that you've extended to us your hospitality. That no matter who we are or what we've done, we have a seat at your table. That your grace is real. And Lord, as we experience that hospitality, Lord, teach us to extend it to others. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.